This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 30 for February, Lent. 2013. And your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Morfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That is me. Our subject for this episode is The Last Temptation of Christ, the 1988 Martin Scorsese directed adaptation of the novel by Todd. I'm going to make you say his name. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, it's Greek. Kazantzakis. By that Greek guy. <laughs> By that Greek guy. Kazantzakis. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not read the novel by the Greek guy, or seen The Last Temptation of Christ, or read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there are some major spoilers about how the life of Jesus ends. Todd, I think... Uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with the rather infamous production history of this film. Can you say a little bit about uh, when it came out and what your experience with the film was prior to viewing it this week? My history, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, when the film came out in 1988, I was a senior. Yeah, I guess I was a senior in high school. I was attending a Christian high school. I did not see the film uh, in its theatrical release, although everyone around me certainly had many, many opinions about this film. Um, It was a regular topic of conversation about how horrible Hollywood was, um, how horrible Scorsese was, how horrible Willem Dafoe was, and, and not horrible as artists, but horrible as people. Um, that they would deign to do such a blasphemous thing as make this this movie. And so I heard a lot about the film. It was probably, oh, I don't know, 10 years later, I actually chose to read the novel, Kazakansaki's novel, The Last Temptation of Christ. And part of my approaching the novel was was to see what was all of the hullabaloo. It, it seems as though the Christian subculture kind of goes through these periods where they're constantly finding something to be offended by. And at the time I was reading The Last Temptation of Christ was roughly, I think, about the same time that Mel Gibson's The Passion, which was embraced by the Christian community, was coming out. And, you know, I had in my mind the things I had heard during The Last Temptation. So I thought, well, I'm going to read this thing. Um, I found the novel to be highly complex, very moving, and it really did get me thinking about the you know that that mystery at the heart of the Christian faith of the full divinity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ. I thought the novel did it in a way that I did not find offensive. I can see why some people might um, just 
the very nature of thinking about Christ having thoughts that were not pure and good. I mean, I'm sure it could be offensive. And so then we come till to you know this weekend, and I still had never seen the film. I'd seen a few cuts of scenes here and there, but I'd never seen the film. And so this weekend was the first time I'd ever sat down and watched the whole thing. So that that's kind of my history with it. All right, mine's pretty similar. I I would have been a senior in college in 1988. Uh, I've never seen the film. I have vague recollections of umbrage and outrage that were permeating various church communities and whatnot. I was going to say message boards, but of course, back then when I was a boy, we didn't have the internet, so there were no message boards. But I do remember there was some 800 number that we were supposed to call to let Universal Studios know that we either weren't going to go see Midnight Run, which was the next Universal production, or weren't going to buy the VHS or beta release of <laughs> E.T. the Extraterrestrial, because that was going to show Hollywood that if they offended us, that we could they couldn't have our all of our money. I don't think that ended very well. I think the the E.T. made a little bit of money. I think yeah. I, well, I, I think the home video of E.T. made a little bit of money. Yeah, but uh, I'd never seen it. I kind of sort of biographical footnote was uh, I got married in the fall of 1988 in September, and my wife and I were on our honeymoon in Kingston, Ontario, and we went to a little two-screen movie theater, and the two movies that were played were The Last Temptation of Christ and Die Hard. And so we were on our honeymoon, and my wife said, well, I guess let's go see Die Hard. And I was like, oh, man, did I pick you know, <laughs> the, the right person to get married to. So I, I guess I can thank Martin Scorsese for my seeing Die Hard <laughs> on my honeymoon. I guess that segues into having talked a little bit about our context and our expectations, what our general responses to the movie were. I'll let you go first. If Well... My general, even when I was a teenager in high school, my general response to the film had been, because I'd already, some of the rumblings that we did here, having not seen the film, was that the film wasn't all that good. And my general thought was, if we don't pay attention, it'll just go away. And 25 years later, looking at the film, I'm thinking, yeah, if no one would have paid attention, it would have made a little splash, and then it would have gone away, and we wouldn't be talking about it now. It would be this minor footnote in Martin Scorsese's Ouvois. Um that's my general thought. Um, I, I don't think it's a very good movie, just technically speaking. Um, you know, I, I've also spent the last 25 years having people go gaga over the Peter Gabriel soundtrack. And as an album, it may be fine and good and whatever. But in, in the context of the film, I just couldn't wait for it to stop. And then when it was not playing, I kept thinking, oh, please, God, don't let it start up again. I kept, I kept thinking, what, you couldn't get me in jealous, you know, that they were taken. I was like, what about biblical Palestine, Israel, you know, needed synthesizer drums is what I really want to know. Right. Uh, well, I had probably, I mean, I was in a church or an university community. I wasn't really, I think it's heavily steeped in the evangelical community. So I hadn't heard as much about the film not being a good film. I got probably as I got into graduate school more into film and the backstory that I had always heard was, well, it's Scorsese 
Uh, I know, for instance, it's got an 83% fresh at Rotten Tomatoes. And the, so my recollection was the critical community was lauding the film, uh, with the one exception of Michael Medved, who we may talk about later on, who said in Hollywood versus America rather famously that there were a number of, or at least one prominent named critic who he refused to name that was laughing derisively at the movie and then gave it a glowing review and Medved claimed that he confronted this critic and the critic said it was everyone knew it was a bad movie but no one wanted to be associated with the Christians. Most of what I had heard from the Christian community were about the parts that were offensive, not at all about the quality of the, right. the movie. And so I was a little bit less prepared for the lack of quality in the movie. I was I was a little stunned actually watching the movie like, wow, this is Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I didn't think Martin Scorsese could make a movie this bad. But that actually was a rather disorienting or odd experience because my first major thought in watching the film was like, okay, that's it. That's what you've mm-hmm. been afraid of all these years. And I don't know if the you was directed at me or towards my Christian brothers or sisters. Uh, it was in part so bad that I had a hard time being offended, even though I recognized the parts of it that it would be hard for me to describe with any other word than blasphemous, just because the film was so bad, it was hard for me to take it seriously as Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, as right. the Gospels, as this particular story. It, it, I know it does have a preface that says, uniformly this is not based on the gospels so you know my overall response to the film is almost like going to a 20-year high school reunion and seeing the the campus bully or someone who's grown in your mind as being the prom queen or something like that that stood you up on prom night or something that it has become this big thing in your mind and you're like, oh, that's so banal and ordinary and unthreatening that uh, I kept having that quote from Willa Cather's Paul's case running through my head that what what he saw there was bad enough, but not as bad as the long fear of it had made it. And I think that was kind of my overall response to the film that, uh, but, but boy, it was bad. Was it the Lazarus zombie fingers or was it Jesus pulling his heart out of his chest that really sunk it for you? Well, I mean, I, I have written down in my notes production values and that was within the first five minutes. <laughs> That's the second note that I wrote. The first note that I wrote is, of men to attain God or the, the desire of men to attain being God. So I'm like, right, right fundamentally from the first voiceover or quote from the Greek guy whose name I can't pronounce, uh, I'm like, okay, so this is reimagining the story of Jesus as an anagogue of men trying to attain Godhood. This is not, and then the second note I have is on production values. Uh, so, yeah, the production values were part of it. The music was really uh, part of it. But I, I guess I'm a literature person, so the biggest part of it for me was the script. And 
I know people think this is one of my favorite words, but I just found it incoherent. I just it it seemed to me like there were seldom two scenes in a row that had the same understanding of Jesus. I mean, I would get if the understanding of Jesus wasn't my my gospel interpretation right. of Jesus. But it's like in one of them, he's that liberation theology, early Palestinian zealot. In the other one, he's this postmodern doubter who is trying to get God to just leave him alone by making crosses and crucifying other people. In others, he's a 60s, 70s hippie who just, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And I just kind of felt like it it was hard for me to not lay the bulk of the blame at Paul Schrader's feet. He wrote the screenplay. And Paul Schrader was very talented. He wrote the screenplay for Taxi Driver. He wrote a book on transcendental cinema that's a very intelligent and thoughtful analysis of Brisson and Ozu and Dreyer. So I don't know if he just didn't get the novel or the Gospels or whether Scorsese said, here's what I want, and he didn't know how to make it into what Scorsese wanted if or or what. Right. But it just it read to me like a bunch of individual scenes loosely based on the gospel. And on each particular scene, there was, how can we defamiliarize this by making this other than what it is in the gospel, but not necessarily uniform unto itself to present a, a unified, cogent picture of who we think Jesus is and what he think he was doing. It, just, it, it seems to be like flopping around like a fish to me. And, and, you know, to kind of build on that a little bit, the the incoherence for me was, you know, I, I could buy, you know, when we're going from kind of larger event in Christ's life to larger event in Christ's life, I could buy there being some major changes between those. Um, although certainly my recollection of reading the novel is there was a ton of connective tissue there that made it make sense. Right. But even, you know, within each scene or within each event in Christ's life, it was almost like from cut to cut, from editorial cut to editorial cut, it didn't know what it was doing. Yeah. And there were any number of, of these events where I was kind of like, you, the scene seemed to be moving in this direction and there'd be a cut. And then all of a sudden Jesus is a totally different person. And that, that's the part for me where it, it was incoherent that it bothered me. So I, I certainly agree with that. The use of that word. You had mentioned connective tissue, and and I, I guess I want to jump in and say it's hard for me to blame a lot of that on Willem Dafoe. I mean, I don't yeah. know what acting. I look at the words he's given to <laughs> say, and I don't know what acting choices could have made it consistent. Uh, so I tend to put a little bit more of the blame on Scorsese or Schrader in in terms of giving him something. I think. Willem Dafoe spends most of the movie looking for some kind of psychological unity, mm-hmm. uh, but that psychological unity of incoherent, you know, if you take incoherent statements, the only way that you can psychologically unify them is by saying the person is going through different psychological stages or a lot of them have to do with you know, doubt or something right. like that. 
Uh, I suppose one of the things that became clear to me in watching was that I had always more or less had the impression that it was fairly faithful up until the point where Jesus was crucified. And then he has this imaginary scene of coming down from the cross where all of the offensive stuff happens that Christians complained about. And the defenders said, yeah, but they're not saying that really happened. They're saying he was tempted to do that. But consistently throughout the film, there's a representation of Jesus as representing himself as not knowing who he is, of not thinking or believing that he is divine, of not believing he will be divine until he is crucified, of not wanting to be divine, and of considering himself to be sinful. I know he says at one point, I have written down in my notes, Lucifer is inside of me. Can't he, I think this is Jesus talking to Judas, about God, can't he see what's inside me, my sins? I'm a liar, a hypocrite and so on and, and so forth, not because I don't want to, you know, be good or whatever, because I'm afraid. And I'm like, okay, so now Jesus is Frodo. Uh, okay. You know, I know what I want to do, but I'm afraid to do it. But uh, I certainly think that a lot of Christians would be very strongly uncomfortable with the portrait of Jesus, who is kind of dragged unwillingly by God the Father to the cross for some purpose he knows not what, mm -hmm. and we know not we know not what, um, other than that's the way that God is going to be brought to the world in a very general way. I think in another point, Jesus says, thank you, Lord, for bringing me where I did not want to go. So, I mean, there is the, the sort of defense of the film at the end where the person tempting him actually ends up being the devil, mm -hmm. but... That's only at the end of the film. It appears to be like he's got plenty of temptations all throughout the film, and this is the last temptation. Uh, I was also particularly bothered by the film's depiction of the parable of the seeds, where all of the Jewish listeners, and I gotta say, you know, for tangent alert coming up here, for all the people who get on Mel Gibson's version for being anti-Semitic, lordy, um, the portrayal of the Jews in here, but uh, but where the, someone asked Jesus to say, well, okay, if you're the farmer and what now, what is the seed? And in the gospel, that's the sower sows the word. It's, yeah. it's the gospel. It's the good news. And Jesus says in the movie, love. Like, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sowing my lesson of love like Johnny Appleseed. Which has just very disturbing Freudian overtones. Right. But I, I guess I'm... I'm I, I'm getting back to uh, nitpicks about the film. In terms of incoherence, you had said formally from cut to cut that might be budget uh, or differences between the book and the film. You had mentioned connective tissue, and we had talked a little bit about the difficulty of doing that in a film versus a novel. Do you, do you want to see? Well, you're, I mean, you're, the, you're becoming a yeah. resident expert in, <laughs> in adaptation or thoughts about adaptation. Well, and I mean, it's something that we've talked about before in the sense that in a fictional, in a piece of fiction, a novel, um, one of the great strengths, right, of a written novel 
is that the author is able to delve into the interior workings of a character's character you know, in, in, the, in their mind, in their heart, what, what's going on. They can explore that. And so we can get a deeper understanding of what's going on inside of a person, even while you know ac- actions are going on outside. It's one of the things that makes novels great. Right. Film, that's much more difficult to do. Um, um, you, you've used the, the, the comparison between abstraction and concreteness. Yes. Um, that's an emergenetics word, for, but we won't get into that <laughs> tangent. But the, the idea is, yeah, I mean, in, in a novel, we can deal with abstractions and ideas um, that are going there. And, and we all understand this as part of our own human experience. There are things that go through our heads that don't come out in our actions all the time. Film is a very concrete visual medium. And well, one article about The Last Temptation was saying, you know, one of the problems with, is that in the, in the book, Christ's temptation and his having a married life and having children, you know, the, the act of sex is brushed over. It, it's an abstraction. But in film, well, you got to show it. In order to repudiate it, it has to be shown, and it becomes a very concrete image right? that can be very disturbing. And so even if we're looking at this as something to think about, the novel allows us to do that in a less concrete way. Um, the film makes it very, very immediate. And that can be very challenging, you know, even when it's done well. Right. Well, the word I wrote down while you were talking was externalized. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. the stuff is internalized in the film. And in order to show it on film, particularly in this particular film, a lot of it gets externalized. Now, we had said, or I think you had said, the film film has to, has to make it concrete. I would argue with that a little bit and say, I think that's the natural tendency of film. I think right. there are certain filmmakers, uh, Bresson is one, Tarkovsky, who have struggled with ways of depicting the internal without just externalizing it through voice, Mm -hmm. through dialogue, through having a character say, I am now feeling tempted, or visualizing. But that's very, very difficult. And a lot of the people who do that are masters. I think it's interesting that a lot of the ones who do that are ones that Schrader, Paul Schrader, is attracted to in Mm -hmm. his book about transcendental cinema. And so there was a part of me reading this that was like, hey, Paul Schrader, did you read your own book? Or was it just in reading your own book, either I can't do that because I'm no Robert Bresson, or that's just not the film that Marty is trying to make or that the American public is is going to want to watch. Yeah. And I think a great example of that is just the opening shot of the film where kind of are floating around and we kind of come down out of the sky and we we're looking at Jesus in an orchard or something and he's rolling around on the ground in agony. Right. And there's this voiceover and, and, and really for me, you know, the, the, as soon as I heard voiceover, I was like, Oh dear. What, right, right. And, because you know that would have been that was a choice, right? And the the voiceover makes it very. This is what's going on inside of his head. 
Mm-hmm. A choice that I think what I would have found more artistically moving would have been just don't do the voiceover. Now, we don't know exactly then what he's agonizing over, but we know he's agonizing. Right. Um, and, and that is a more internalized, abstract thing. I mean, we would then, the audience would have to come to some ideas to what he's agonizing over. Well, that's quickly followed by he's making crosses and helping the yeah. Romans crucify other people. And then you get the externalized, not through voiceover, but through dialogue. Right. Where he says, why am I helping the Romans crucify these people? Because I want God to get mad at me. I, I don't like what God is asking me to do. So I, I think if I do this, I will offend God and and get him to leave me alone. And so, again, there's that externalized through dialogue. Of, right. Rather than allowing the reader to view a character doing that and say, why might a character be doing that? Hmm, I'll bet I know or I understand that action or I come to understand. It has to be explained by the character. And I, I wonder how much of that is, again, either talent or being a little cowed by the material. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, because this is showing Jesus and we're already a little on edge that people will complain if we see this. We have to explain to everyone, no, we're not trying to be offensive. Here's what it is that we're trying to show. Right. And it, it ends up being where, like, everything has to be explained because we don't have as much confidence in the audience or we're not quite as sure of ourselves in terms of, of what we want, you know, what we want to say. And, and I think there, you know, looking at Scorsese, looking at Schrader, you know, these are very talented filmmakers. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and some of that not trusting the audience is not just because they're the kind of people who, who thinks that the audience is stupid. I mean, we're looking at a, a project, um, the uh, Sarner called uh, Carol uh, Ianon, um in 1996 wrote a piece for First Things called The Last Temptation Reconsidered. And she kind of recounts some of the production history. And, you know, the fact is, is that Scorsese had wanted to make the film back in the 70s, Paramount. Um, had pulled out and he had finally been able to get universal to do it. But even then they were only able to get a budget of $7 million, which for Hollywood is nothing. And it was all driven by the controversy around the source material, which was published in 1955 and had been put on, you know, the Catholic church's list of books you don't read. And I mean, it, it, it was a controversial thing. Um, so their concern or fear was somewhat understandable, I guess is what I'm saying there. Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, I hear us saying they were right to not trust the audience. But then there's also, and I'm just speculating here, there also is this, like, let's not do either or, that is, perhaps there still wasn't an awareness of 88 would have been the end of the Reagan era. So you do have the new moral majority. Mm-hmm. And the two. But the, the sense in which it's like to the extent some of that explication is given for people who might not be thoughtful. Or, well, those people aren't going to go see the movie anyway, right? right? They're all going to boy, boycott and pick it. So the only people who are going to go see the movie are probably cinephiles, you know, Scorsese fans, or something like that. and. Um, I think the movie would have been better or might have been better if there was a little bit more boldness about it. It, it, 
it struck me as being a very timid movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know about that. I, I do want to say one thing before we get into the, or go back and ask you to address one thing before we get into responses to the film, <laughs> talking about the response to the film, which is we've both said that we thought the movie was not very good. I think I thought it a little worse than you did or whatnot, but, um, but neither of us were, we both used the word <laughs> incoherent. Uh, there's a part of me that feels the need to address that's a minority opinion, right? It's 7.5 at IMDb. It's uh, 83% fresh at Rotten Tomatoes. It's like in the 80s for Metacritic. I think Metacritic had like 17 positive reviews and one mixed review and didn't have any negative mm-hmm. reviews. So there's apparently a, a strong critical consensus that we're wrong and Scorsese did it just fine. Well, I guess my response to that, having not looked at any of these reviews or anything, would be to say, what are they, what are they approving of? Are they saying this is a well-made movie? Are they saying this was a brave movie? Are they saying, you know, this kind of fresh take on the life of Christ is, you made this in the face of great controversy and we are going to give you props for that. I don't know. I mean, that would be my first question on that score. Cause I just, I have a, I do have a hard time thinking that people that watch and know what good movies are would look at what we saw and say that was a well-made film. And yet it's equally hard for me <laughs> to imagine that they would give it a thumbs up review if they said, well, this is a bad film, but we're going to applaud Scorsese for every now and then for doing something courageous or for trying right. you know, to say, well, that was an interesting failure because at least they were trying something new or different. Like, uh, well, I would say like me talking about the Hobbit where I would say, okay, that was a failure, but at least it was an interesting failure in that they're trying out this 43 bits per second and that didn't work, but... Yeah. But that's, yeah, so maybe I could see my way through to someone looking at certain aspects and saying, okay, we applaud that he's trying to do a film about religion or trying to do a film about Jesus, but... I'd. And then there, there's the other part of me, you know, since we've been talking about adaptations, um, you know, the last episode with Zero Dark Thirty and Argo and whatnot, I mean, both of us, I mean, I think you liked Argo less than I did. Mm-hmm. We both agree that it has serious flaws, at least in the second half. And yet that film is sweeping all of these awards. Um, people are falling all, all over themselves to say this is so great. And I mean, I felt the same way about Silver Linings Playbook. I was like, okay, it's interesting, but doesn't really deserve all of those accolades. So Mm -hmm. maybe we're just grumpy curmudgeons. Yeah, it could be. Or, I mean, maybe a better contemporary example might be Amor, uh, which is another film that's getting a lot of critical uh, lauding Mm -hmm. and is getting a lot of pushback from some sections of the wider culture because of what it's about or the way certain people think that it's about, whether they've actually seen it or not. Right. And it's done by an esteemed filmmaker. Uh, there's a part of me that wonders too, with the reviews, like if this had been made, this film had been made by 
someone other than Martin Scorsese, who I believe in 88 was still on the far side of Raging Bull or something like that and Taxi Driver. Mm -hmm. So he's got yeah. a definite critical consensus or following. If this had just been some new person who had done this, people would be like, whatever. But I, the Hollywood is a community in that uh, I have not risen high enough in film reviewing to have developed relationships with a lot of artists or filmmakers. But I know it is somewhat harder to give a negative review to someone that you know or someone that you like or someone right. that you esteem. I think we saw vestiges of that in Hugo, which was a movie, again, you liked more than I did, mm -hmm. that I liked, but I thought was overpraised because it was from Scorsese and sure. not... Um, so, I mean, maybe there was a little bit of that even even back then or something. Yeah, um, could be. Know. So, well, I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about not just our responses to the film, but our responses to the responses. Uh, you had mentioned that back then there was a part of you, even your high school self, that was somewhat suspicious of let's boycott this film, let's denounce this film without actually watching it. I was a little more sanguine about, I don't know that you have to watch, that in itself becomes a marketing ploy, right? You have to watch this because right. it's controversial before you can say anything negative. And there's a part of me that wants to carve out some space for, do you have to go see every movie before you say, I don't want to see it. And the reason I don't want to see it is because I think that it's offensive. Uh, if so, then what is our job as critics to reward? Right. Know, to, but um, are there ways in which people could have, looking back at the various ways that people have responded to Last Temptation of Christ, and I'm thinking particularly of Christians, since that's a big part of our audience for this podcast. How should they respond when a work like this or a more or something comes along that they begin hearing, gee, it sounds like based on that, that, that not only I don't want to see it, but I have very particular reasons why I don't want to see it. And I think this is somewhat either offensive to me or disrespectful to me mm -hmm. or whatnot. I guess I would start that conversation by saying I think there are, for lack of a better term, better, different rules for the individual, just as an individual film goer, and a person who is putting him, him or herself out as a critic. Okay. Yeah, as an individual, sure. I mean, there are plenty of movies. I mean, just this past weekend, there was an old grindhouse picture that was being shown at a local theater that um, paired up with another film. And I was kind of interested in seeing the one film, but then I, I saw the trailer for the other one. And I just, I knew I was not going to go watch that film. Right. Um, from looking at the trailer, I was just like, that's beyond the pale for me. And as an individual, sure. I need to make those choices. I can only see so many films. I'm going to make some choices. Because a critic is ostensibly trying to persuade yes. other people. And, and and I'm not going out to say no one who is a good person should ever go see whatever film I was not going to see. Um, that's just, I'm making my choice. Right. If you are going to put yourself out there as a critic, making a critical statement in the public about a certain film, I do think you have a certain responsibility to have actually seen the film. And we can start there. Yeah. I mean, okay, so critic versus individual, that's easy enough. I, I walk 
I walked out of Cabin in the Woods mm-hmm. after the first hour where I was just like, I, I don't want to see this. And well, fortunately enough, I was not assigned to review it for Christianity Today or any other publication. So I could make that choice. Right. And I think precisely because I did walk out at the one hour point, I had avoided making any reviews of the film or, mm-hmm. know, but am I still then not able to make pronouncements of the film? Am I still not able to say, Hey, here's the reason why I walked out and it was offensive right. and it was gory and it was whatever. Well, I guess I would say in that case, you did go, you, you made the attempt, right? You went to the film. You sat yeah. through the first hour. I'd heard that it was really clever, and Josh yeah. Whedon, I expected something a little bit more than head and, chopped off. And, and so, you know, you go there, and you and you say, yeah, I walked out after the first hour. Here's why. Mm. That's one thing. That's a very different thing than saying, I have never seen this film. I will never see this film. because And because of these things I've heard about this film, I'm never going to see it. Okay, but so now let me take that one step further, right? So say the person who knows me and is sensitive to violence says, mm-hmm. Oh boy, Ken walked out of that film. That tells me all I need to know. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't actually need to go right. Then sit through that hour in order to know that I don't want right. to go see it. So, and, and yet I do feel like even in a Christian community, we've got a kind of defensiveness about individual choices not to see something. I mean, I, 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 I'm kind of with you that when we get together in a boycott and say, we're going to put pressure on Universal to not release this film or Martin Scorsese to not make this film, then I think that's misguided. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be this attitude because I felt it, right? I mean, right. I don't think I felt it just because I was a critic of sure. like, of like, you know, when I said I walked out of Cabin in the Woods, oh, you know, how could you do that? It's so good at the end. You have to go back and watch that. And and I'm like, no, I really, I, I don't think I do or something like that. And I mean, to a large extent, it's been 25 years since Last Temptation of Christ came out and I didn't watch it for 25 years. When I did, I'm going to sound like Dennis Green now, it was what I thought it was, only worse. I mean, worse technically, not right. worse morally, but it, it was pretty much what I expected or anticipated it to be. And so, you know, I don't know, I, there's this part of me that feels like we get sold this bill of goods that says, if you if you don't go see this, and decide for yourselves, you're somehow not an open-minded person uh, or a fair person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that's marketing strategy. I think it's a marketing ploy. I mean, that makes about as much sense to me as saying can't vote for someone for president unless you actually know them you right. know, or unless you've actually met them and sort of say, well, I don't think we ever know these people, but we try to find out you know, information. And again, I guess there I'm, I'm still at the the distinction there between an individual and the critic. And maybe, you know, we think about a critic as a person who's, I mean, most people go to critics to say, well, for one of two things, if you're going to look at a critic before you've seen the film, part of that is I want to make a decision about whether or not I want to go spend my money 
and spend my time taking in this piece of entertainment right. or art. And the person writing that review, I think, you know, certainly does have a certain responsibility to have at least tried to see the film. Um, I think, you know, your experience with Cabin in the Woods, you, you made that good faith effort. And, you know, you can certainly write up that, that piece that says, here's why I walked out. This is what caused me. And, or not write up that piece. Or not. Just tell my but, friends on Facebook or Twitter right. or whatnot. And, and people will take that information as they will. And that as the individual. If you're going to start going and organizing boycotts and acting that much larger, I think you do have some sort of responsibility to actually know what it is you're talking about. And maybe that doesn't necessarily, yeah, here, I'll, I'll, I'll modify the position slightly. You know, maybe that doesn't necessarily mean having to view the entire thing from beginning to end, but you need to actually know what it is you're, you're speaking of. And at least in my experience from Last Temptation of Christ in 1988, a lot of the negative energy, the boycotting, the imprecations against Hollywood and all that were coming from people who really had no idea what was actually on uh, in the film. Right. And there's something that's tactical or pragmatic about that, which is to say if you start to find something you don't know what you're talking about, eventually you're going to make a mistake or error, just a fact, not a mistake of judgment, but right. an error of fact, and then you're going to look foolish, and you're going to lose what we call in argumentation your ethos, you know, your credibility right. to be able to talk, and people are not going to listen to you. And I do think a large part of the Christian community has lost a lot of ethos amongst the broader community because, oh, well, if you're willing to talk about art or film – without really knowing what you're talking about, it's easier to dismiss whatever you have to say about the Bible or what the Bible says about homosexuality or gay right. marriage or, you know, the subordination of women or slavery or something like that, because our overall experience of you is that you make critical judgments without really being informed about whatever it is that you know, you're talking about. So, um, I mean, I suppose there's a, tactical strategic reason for uh being more measured in our judgments when we're less informed about our particular mm -hmm. things uh, there's also a part of me as an educator that just says and this is something that that i struggle with as a critic because i'm you know i i want to reserve as an individual as a spiritual individual my right of discernment to say, I don't want to go see that because right. I think that's not good for me or right for me or just because I know. But I also know that as an educator, I routinely, well, maybe routinely is a little strong, but I occasionally ask students or younger people or developing people to say, yeah, I know this makes you uncomfortable, but some discomfort is good for you because either you're going to stay in your bubble and never be stretched or think about it. And I'm not asking you to like it mm -hmm. or approve of it or agree with it, but I am asking you to consider it. And otherwise you're going to be at the mercy of circumstances where you're very limited in what can ever push you to reconsider new ideas or new things. That idea there kind of leads me into, I, in this um, article from First Things uh, by Carol uh, Ianon, 
that I was referring to, she has a quote from Scorsese um, concerning what his intention was in making The Last Impatient of Christ. And I think it fits into what you're kind okay. of talking about there. Scorsese, this is from the article, Scorsese claims that he had learned, quote, from a priest friend that the Greek guy's book um, is used in seminaries, not as a substitute for the Gospels, but as a parable that is fresh and alive, which they can discuss and argue about. And this is what I hoped the film would do, end quote. And, you know, we can argue as to whether or not he was successful or not, but really in this idea that, yeah, there are some things that are uncomfortable that maybe do challenge us, but the goal being we to get us to think deep, more deeply about things. And certainly one of the themes that Cousin Takis was deeply interested in, in writing the novel, Last Temptation of Christ, was that tension between the humanity and the divinity of Christ, and the fact that he was tempted in all ways. And how do how do those things work together? And in that that's certainly something that we're thinking about now. Did you know Scorsese's film successfully do that? That's a question. Well, it apparently got us thinking about it. it you know, right? it, so sure. I mean, if if the goal was not to advocate an argument to say this is what the incarnation means and this is what right. it means to be fully human, but to say. Most people throw around that word like incarnation and define it as fully God and fully man. But what does that even mean? Even to say, well, not that gets you thinking about, well, what does it mean? Exactly. As opposed to just. And and that can have, you know, a profound effect. And Jesus is an abstraction to a lot of people. We're back to that abstract versus concrete. Jesus is an abstraction to a lot of people. So, you know, and the very fact of putting him up on the screen you know, putting an actor saying I am Jesus up on the screen is going to make that more concrete and force us to ask some questions. Right. My, my wife has, um, has a saying a lot of times it says a lot of times you don't know what your expectations are until you're disappointed. <laughs> and you say, well, why am I disappointed? And you realize you have an expectation that you didn't have. Well, maybe the film's operating in that same way. Whereas I don't know what vague notions of Jesus are floating around in my head until I see something and I'm disappointed and say, well, that's not it. Well, how is that different from the image of your head? And it becomes a tool. Like yeah. he's saying that helps you go through that and say, well, because my understanding is X, Y, or Z or something like that. And it helps you to, in a weird sort of deconstructive way, tear it apart and rebuild it, <laughs> it being whatever your image of Jesus right. is. And certainly, I know I had a, a something of a similar response when I saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I mean, it was certainly not a film I enjoyed in any sense. I was glad that I saw the film. But certainly one of the things that it did for me is in making itself concrete, kind of like it presented this concrete image. And then that made me wrestle with, okay, I mean, we talk about the crucifixion. What was that really? Okay, there's that part of it. And then, you know, there's even its depiction of Jesus himself, um, and especially the kind of the controversial ending, the, you know, triumphant militant Jesus um, at the end of that film that I did find disappointing. And but that got me thinking about, well, OK, well, what what do I think about the resurrected Jesus? And that, you know, so it did have a value in that sense. Right. Um, just as the last. Parting thought, you had mentioned the Passion of the Christ. Any other 
Jesus films that you, um, you know, want to throw in there as being particularly good or particularly bad for people who are like, okay, well, maybe I want to do some of that thinking that Scorsese talks about, but this, this film doesn't sound like it. Right. I don't, I don't really, um, you know, there, there's the, at least it's somewhat well known in evangelical circles, the Jesus film, um, that gets shown and uses an uh, evangelistic tool and all over the world. Um, I've seen parts of that. I wasn't particularly impressed. Um, you know, I've, I've seen any number of kind of Jesus era films that right. they all kind of blend into one for me. Yeah. So I, I can't say, I mean, that, that's one of the things that these two, you know, the passion and last temptation do stand out for me as being films that get me thinking. Right. I think uh, certainly in cinephile circles, uh, Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew is does a lot of that same work, although Pasolini, like, I was going to say like Gibson, like Scorsese, can be a somewhat controversial filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am very fond of the animated The Miracle Maker. I watch that at Easter sometimes, which the use of animation, the claymation and uh, hand-drawn animation is enough of a defamiliarization where even though you're familiar with the story, you're seeing it in a, in a slightly mm-hmm. different way. Uh, the only issue I have with that is I think Ray Fenz does a voice of Jesus and I'm like, it's Aslan, no, it's Voldemort, no, it's Jesus. Uh, but uh, yeah, those are two very good films that, cleave a little closer to the gospel, but still do some work of making you think at times, Oh, that's different. That's wrong. And what do I mean by wrong? And is it really wrong? Is it really wrong to the gospel as written? Or is it really wrong to this sort of cultural, cultural idea of Jesus that's floating in around in my head Mm -hmm. from who knows, who knows what, who knows where. So, um, okay. Anything else? I don't think so. Uh, Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you would like to leave us a note, please come visit us at filmgeekradio.com backslash the thin place, or you can send us an email at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Morefield, or read my reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!